This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Each year, uh, we begin uh, the, at the opening of the new Supreme Court session by inviting members of our faculty to meet with our alumni and friends and talk about some of the issues that they, be- that they believe will be facing the court in the session that is com- term that is coming or look back at what has happened uh, with the perspective of, of uh, obviously knowing, knowing where we're going, uh, what happened last year. So this year we're doing a little bit different format and we're bringing in three of our great professors at the law school. One is a name that's familiar to all of you, and two are more recent hires to the law school. And I just want to, I'm going to do some brief introductions and then we'll get started. First, I'd like to just mention who they are. Justin Driver, the, the uh, professor of law and Herbert and Marjorie Freed research scholar. Jennifer No. Jennifer is the Newbauer Family Assistant Professor of Law. And David Strauss is the Gerald Ratner Distinguished Service Professor of Law at the Law School. I'm going to tell you just a little bit about each one of them, and then we'll get started. Justin Driver joined the Law School faculty uh, just a very short while ago, this July. He was a visiting professor with us. He also was a visiting professor at Harvard, Stanford, the University of Virginia, uh, and then most recently, as I said, with us. Prior to that, he was a tenured professor at the University of Texas. Uh, Justin, now this, I was, I was going through the biographies, I sort of saw each one of you have something in common beyond being brilliant, beyond being on a faculty, beyond being here today and interested in constitutional law. Do you know what that is in your backgrounds? I believe this is correct. Each one of you is a Marshall Scholar. So, uh, the, which is sort of interesting. That I, I'm saying that not just to flatter them, but now I don't have to say it each time. Uh, the, so Justin got his undergraduate degree from Brown, a master's degree from Duke, and as I said, went to Oxford and received his JD degree from Harvard Law School. He then clerked for Merrick Garland on the D.C. Circuit and Justice Sandra O'Connor uh, in the United and Justice. Stephen Breyer at the United States Supreme Court. His principal interests are con law, constitutional theory, and the intersection of race and legal institutions. And for all of you who are interested in, in a really interesting read, uh, Justin just published a review of a recent biography of our former faculty member, uh, Justice Scalia, in the New Republic. I think it's in the last issue uh, and it's a really very interesting. Any of you have uh, Justice Scalia when you were at the law school? All right, so we have some of you. Uh, so you might be particularly interested. Now, second person I'd like to introduce you to is Jennifer No. Jennifer joined our faculty over a little over a year ago. Uh, she was a public fat law fellow at the law school and also a policy analyst and special assistant at the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And we heard about Jennifer. We got a phone call one day from our former faculty member and always member of our family, Cass Sunstein. And Cass said, you got to take a look at this woman. She is the real deal. She's Chicago all the way. And so we called her. We got her to come in as a fellow. And then we saw how wonderful she was. And we hired her. 
and she's doing great at the law school. She's a graduate of Yale College, Yale Law School, uh, clerked for Dick Posner on the Seventh Circuit, and then Justice Breyer at the United States Supreme Court. Her interests are ad law, legislation, legal interpretation, and election law. And Jennifer is our first Neubauer assistant professor, which means there's a certain number of Neubauer professors in the whole university, and we compete to get them because they offer some extra nice things for the faculty member and intellectual community and around the whole university. And we um, convinced the university to give us a Neubauer for Jennifer, and we're just delighted that, that she is at the law school. The last person I'm going to introduce, uh, you know, in, in the cliched expression, needs no introduction. Uh, he joined the law school faculty in 1985. Uh, David Strauss is the, uh, along with Jeff uh, Stone and Dennis Hutchinson, he's the editor of the renowned Supreme Court Review. He's been a visiting professor at Harvard and Georgetown. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. As I indicated, he's a distinguished service professor at the University of Chicago. And for any of you who don't know the nomenclature, that's about as good as you can get. Uh, it's the, it's the tippy-top chair. Certainly, I don't have one, probably never will, uh, but David does. Uh, the, uh, he, um, and and I'm, it's not even with uh, any envy that I say that. I just am in awe. Uh, so David is, is uh, one of the things about David Strauss how many of you had David Strauss when you were at the law school? So if I, when I go and I meet alumni, and many of you uh, in this room have been inflicted with that experience uh, before, I always say, what's your favorite law professor? Because that sort of warms people up. You, know, you don't say who your least favorite uh, person was, uh, although I can guess who it is sometimes. Uh, but uh, basically, you say, who's the most favorite? If they've been at the law school from 1985 to today, almost uniformly they will say David Strauss. He has a remarkable ability to, to both convey knowledge but also to make people feel they're active participants and that every great idea is their own great idea, which makes them even, even better. Uh, he's also an unbelievable scholar. His book, The Living Constitution, changed the way many of us think about constitutional interpretation. And his interests are constitutional law, federal jurisdiction, he obviously teaches elements of the law at the law school, and he's taught civil procedure and torts. With that, you've heard enough of me. The way we're going to go is we're going to go in, in this order, I believe, and each, each of our uh, faculty members will talk for uh, something like 15 minutes or so. Then we'll throw it open uh, for a robust and hopefully difficult questioning of these people, and maybe we'll get a little debate going. So with that, I'd like to ask uh, Justin to come up. Okay, so I'm delighted to be here. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to speak about today, surveying the uh, cases that are on the horizon at the court, um, there's nothing that's currently pending that especially grabbed me by the lapels and insisted that I speak about it. And so I thought that I would look at a case that could be hurtling toward the court right now, um, a case that uh, could be called Fisher II someday, and if that ends up being true, um, then uh, proponents of affirmative action will be perhaps very unhappy with the outcome. Uh, I say it's going to be 
called Fisher II, of course, because the first Fisher case was decided uh, only last year. Uh, and in that case, the court considered a challenge to the uh, to the affirmative action program at the University of Texas undergraduate program. Um, and uh, the way that the court dealt with that case and how it could deal with, a, uh, with its return, I think tells us something about the Roberts Court and the way that it interprets the Constitution. So in order to understand uh, Fisher, when the, when the case was initially granted by the Supreme Court, advocates of affirmative action were unbelievably queasy. Uh, and the reason for that queasiness is twofold. One is uh, with respect to personnel, right? Uh, Justice Kagan was going to be recused from the case and uh, because of her work in the Solicitor General's office. And so even in the incredibly unlikely event that uh, the University of Texas were to peel off uh, Justice Kennedy, it would uh, amount to a four-to-four decision, and uh, that was going to be a very tall order, most people thought. And so apart from the personnel, there were substantive reasons for the queasiness as well. Generally, when affirmative action cases make their way to the Supreme Court, it is a conjectural matter as to um, what the admitted group of students would look like if race were not taken into account. No one knows exactly the answer to that question, and so it's easier to say it is necessary to take account of race um, uh, and to satisfy this compelling governmental interest. Uh, but here, in light of the way that Texas had set up its program, uh, the, what the school would look like in the absence of race was not conjectural. It was, it was, it was, it was actual. And uh, the story is, involves some understanding of uh, the Supreme Court's sort of historical jurisprudence in this area. Uh, because the Texas program had what we might think of as, as a Texas two-step, okay? So the first step here is there's something called the Texas 10% plan, whereby students who finish in the top 10% of their high school graduating class are automati automatically admitted to the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, and the second part is what the university refers to as a holistic admissions process where uh, they will take account race along with many other factors in determining who is admitted. The overwhelming majority of the student body is admitted under this Texas 10% plan, which again doesn't take account of race, uh, with the, the class being rounded out by taking account of race and uh, many, other, many other issues. It's worth saying that the reason that the Texas 10% plan achieves racial diversity is because of the racial composition of schools in Texas. Um, that is to say, they're overwhelmingly uh, sort of monoracial in nature. There are many single-race schools in Texas, not, of course, by law, but by fact. And so uh, taking 10% of them will yield a racially diverse class. And so uh, the, the, the court first got involved in this area um, in 1978 in a case called Bakke. Many of you all would have studied that in law school. And uh, there it was a very unusual decision. It's involving the UC Davis Medical School. 
And uh, the way that they did their admissions program was that 16 slots were set aside for racial minorities. This case comes to the court. Uh, many people think that it is uh, doomsday for affirmative action. It hadn't been in existence all that long, uh, but that it was not long for this, not long for this world. Uh, it, uh, affirmative action finds an unlikely savior in the form of Lewis Powell, uh, a native Virginian, um, you know, a, a Richmond gentleman and someone who grew up around segregation and as his biographer John Jeffries says, uh, didn't seem to be all that much bothered by the existence of racial segregation. The idea that this person was going to uh, say that affirmative action was permissible when uh, he perhaps had just begun to wrap his mind around the idea of racial equality was an incredibly unlikely uh, outcome. Nevertheless, it's a decision that's thought of as a 4-1-4 decision, right? So there are four justices who are saying that uh, these programs um, violate actually the statutory basis and should be struck down. Four think that the UC Davis Medical School program is perfectly constitutional, and Justice Powell, writing only for himself, uh, says that this is um, uh, unconstitutional, what UC Davis is doing. However, there are some usages of race that are permissible. And so he plucks out of thin air, effectively, the Harvard College admissions program and says if you were doing it for the purposes of diversity uh, and not as a compensatory matter, then it's plausible. And, there, and as long as there is no quota as the 16, set, 16 slots that were set aside uh, suggests, then universities may take account of race in their admissions pro process. Okay, so then a few, in 1996, the Fifth Circuit um, avails itself of Powell writing only for himself. Uh, Powell, again, he's, he, he's the only person who thought about the case in the way that he thought about it. He referred to himself as being a chief with no Indians. Uh, and uh, the Fifth Circuit said, effectively, Justice Powell was writing only for himself, and uh, we're going to rethink this, and affirmative action uh, needs to go. This is a case called Hopwood. That leaves the University of Texas scrambling for how it can have uh, a racially diverse class without taking account of race. There is born uh, the Texas 10% program where you have an unusual coalition of legislators from rural areas and urban areas getting together and saying this is uh, a state law and we want to have the University of Texas uh, be there for all students from Texas across the, across the nation. It shouldn't be only for you know, wealthy kids from the suburbs of Dallas and Houston and San Antonio, right? And so you have this, this coalition that passes this law, and there are all sorts of statements uh, at the time about how this will yield um, a racially diverse class. Uh, this part of the program is not in any way under challenge at the Supreme Court, and the justices, uh, including the justices who are skeptical of race-conscious practices, uh, seem to think this is perfectly constitutional, although it's not obvious why that is so if you take their doctrine seriously. Um, the Supreme Court doctrine says that we treat programs that are designed to benefit racial minorities with the exact same scrutiny that we, uh, uh, that, that we treat uh, programs that are designed to harm racial minorities. Uh, and so one could imagine, uh, as people who were skeptical of these sorts of programs, 
uh, latching on to the statements in the legislative record that says, wait a minute, uh, you know, th- to say that, th- that this program will yield racial diversity, that that is impermissible because it's taking account of race. Um, I'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, and so uh, finally, after having the Texas 10% program, uh, the court entertains uh, you know, two challenges in 2003 to the University of Michigan, one to the law school, one to the undergraduate. And there, Justice O'Connor, again, a perhaps unlikely uh, savior of affirmative action, uh, writes an opinion saying that the way that um, the Michigan Law School uses race in its admission practices is permissible. The way that the undergraduate institution uh, does is, is impermissible. The undergraduate institution effectively had too crude a mechanism. As long as the law school was taking account of a single um, uh, taking account of admitting a class and thinking about diversity generally and not awarding points for the, pay, for the purposes of admission, it was going to be fine. So in the wake of that, that is when the University of Texas decides to add in this holistic review that includes race race is part of it. They say the Supreme Court says that we can consider race and so we're going to do it, but they still have the Texas 10% law that is accounting uh, for, uh, for part of it. And so finally, uh, the Supreme Court in Fisher um, uh, issues an opinion on uh, this, this program. And there, the court remands to the Fifth Circuit to say that the way that you wrote this opinion does not comport with our jurisprudence. Uh, Grutter includes language about deference uh, to educational institutions. And the court effectively says, while there may be some deference with respect to whether it's a compelling governmental interest, there is no deference on the question of whether the program has been narrowly tailored and uh, whether race is necessary. Universities need to consider whether uh, you know, there are non-racial mechanisms that will yield racial diversity. And as you can imagine, that could be a very difficult uh, obstacle to hurdle for the University of Texas, precisely because uh, taking account of people who were admitted under the holistic admissions process, at most, that means that there are, uh, you know, 200 African-American and Latino people who are admitted to the program out of, you know, a decent-sized number of people. And so many would say, you can achieve the benefits of racial diversity without this racial classification. Okay, so on remand, the Fifth Circuit completely sticks to its guns uh, and says that this program does pass uh, constitutional muster, even when we apply strict scrutiny to the narrow tailoring portion of the program. And, and one of the bases for that decision is that uh, what the University of Texas does in its holistic process looks an awful lot like what the University of Michigan Law School did in the Grutter case. And so, uh, you know, c- critics of this opinion would say, well, that may be true, but you're completely ignoring that there's this thing called the 10% program, which makes up the lion's share of the classroom. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, currently uh, the case is pending. Uh, there's, been a, uh, there's been a petition for rehearing on Bonk, and it'll be very interesting to see. If the court, uh, if the Fifth Circuit as a whole does not reverse, I think that this will make it back to the Supreme Court, and uh, it'll be fascinating to see what the Supreme Court uh, will do. So what are the implications of this? Uh, you know, uh, opinion and potential grant of cert going forward. One is that uh, during the Roberts Court, we can see a fracturing 
of the traditional divides on the Equal Protection Clause jurisprudence. The traditional way of understanding uh, the Equal Protection Clause is, you know, there are two ways. One would be that uh, the 14th Amendment, and in particular the Equal Protection Clause, was designed to prohibit classifications on the basis of race, that the governmental decision should not pay attention to race. Uh, the other would be that uh, the Equal Protection Clause was designed to forbid subordination uh, on the basis of race, the idea that one group of people is inferior to the other. And uh, if one is an anti-classification, uh, adheres to an anti-classification view of the 14th Amendment, then affirmative action programs are generally thought to be impermissible. And if one adheres to an anti-subordination theory of the 14th Amendment, then they are generally thought to be pose no problems at all because it's not designed to say that any group is inferior when one is taking account of race in the admissions pro process. And so it's, there's been a fracturing during the Roberts Court uh, in part because uh, Anthony Kennedy uh, makes a relatively unusual move for someone who adheres to anti-classification. Generally, anti-classification is being seen is, is being is seen as uh, being coextensive with colorblindness. Those, two, those terms are used interchangeably. I am opposed to, class, to classification because the Constitution is colorblind. Anthony Kennedy says we need to pull those ideas apart, and there's a way in which one can be anti-classification, which Anthony Kennedy certainly is, uh, but not be opposed um, uh, to, uh, sorry, but, but, but reject the notion of colorblindness. Uh, and so he says we can pay, schools can pay in the context of K through 12, can pay attention to the world around us and understand that there are racialized neighborhoods. And so uh, when uh, school districts are paying uh, or deciding where to build schools or how to draw the lines, that is uh, permissible and may not even draw strict scrutiny. Uh, but it's the problem is classification itself. And that may explain, again, why the Texas 10% plan uh, seems to be perfectly legitimate to, to Justice Kennedy. But his pulling apart of uh, anti-classification from colorblindness is a really important move. The other thing, the other way that uh, the Equal Protection Clause has been scrambled is that uh, Justice Thomas, uh, an, uh, an opponent of affirmative action, claims the anti-subordination mantle. Before I said that people who cling to anti-subordination believe that affirmative action programs are generally permissible, Justice Thomas opposes them, and he says the reason that I oppose them is that they are predicated on the idea of racial inferiority, right? They give, the, they give credence to the lie that uh, black people are not up to the task intellectually, and the very policy itself subordinates, right? And so there's been uh, you know, a, a fracturing of the Equal Protection Clause jurisprudence. Um, you know, th another uh, important issue that this um, highlights at the Roberts Court is history and uh, the way that history sometimes comes in and sometimes retreats from view. One of the more important jurisprudential movements of our time is originalism, and many people who pay attention to these decisions have been waiting for Justice Scalia or Justice Thomas to explain why their opposition to affirmative action uh, is compatible with originalism because um, there is uh, good reason to believe that the, you know, the federal government took account of race in creating the, um, uh, some, of it, uh, uh, some of its uh, programs in the 1860s, and they were designed to expressly benefit racial minorities. And so why is this, uh, you know, uh, why are your views on the policy of, uh, of affirmative action, uh, and those may be fine as policy views, but they don't flow from originalism. 
Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia have consistently resisted any effort to explain why uh, this is compatible with the 1860s vision of of, uh, the Constitution. And instead, they begin with 1896 and Plessy v. Ferguson and our Constitution is colorblind, right? Um, The other way that history is uh, not present is that uh, the court in the Fisher case did not pay attention to um, an opinion that one may have thought would have played a large role, and that is the Sweat case uh, from the University of Texas Law School, which goes unsighted. Sweat, that black people were prohibited from attending the University of Texas, uh, and he applied, and he said, and he was told that you cannot come here because of your race. Uh, and so that sort of historical legacy of Jim Crow is just completely absent. And uh, one understands Abigail Fisher, a white person, to be in the position of Herman Sweat, being told you can't come here on the basis of race. But that notion may uh, sort of conceal more than it reveals. It's also worth thinking about uh, what this case means about. Um, uh, judicial minimalism at the Supreme Court. Obviously, Chief Justice John Roberts is very invested in the idea of minimal opinions. That is, if opinions can garner a large majority in a lopsided decision, that's preferable to narrow five to four opinions. And so you can see that in the seven to one uh, Fisher opinion that was handed down with Breyer and Sotomayor saying, yes, this remand should happen. And uh, perhaps the hope was that the Fifth Circuit would extinguish the program on its own and not ha- be sort of uh, face the, uh, the the Supreme Court as a as, as a whole again. Um, uh, but it's possible at least that this judicial minimalism focus may take too long a view. Um, you know, there may not be the time on uh, the side of the conservatives. After all, if there is a Democratic president in uh, 2016, one could easily imagine there being, uh, you know, some turnover at the Supreme Court and that that turnover would be uh, uh, believers of affirmative action. And so it's possible that if those who are opposed to affirmative action, they should effectively strike while the iron is hot. And so if this case ends up returning to the Supreme Court, uh, one can quite easily imagine uh, a question uh, presented to the court, or perhaps even the court adding a question about whether Grutter itself should be overruled. And uh, that would mean that if, the, if, that, if that's a plausible scenario and one fears the end of affirmative action, then it may behoove those judges on the Fifth Circuit who are contemplating whether to hear this case and bonk, uh, that they should uh, kill the University of Texas program itself. That is, in order to save affirmative action, the judges of the Fifth Circuit should kill affirmative action. Okay, thanks very much. So it's a real pleasure to be here and meet, uh, to meet so many of our alums. And I thought I would talk a bit about what unites and divides the Roberts Court when it comes to its separation of powers cases, um, or otherwise uh, known as trying to make administrative law interesting to a bigger crowd, which is also my day job. Um, and I'm going to explore this question uh, through a case pending, but rather a case granted, served by the court this term, called Department of Transportation versus Association of American Railroads. And if you've ever been late because of a delay in Amtrak, uh, this case is important for you. So the legal question that's presented is, can Congress delegate governmental authority to a purportedly private entity, in this case Amtrak, 
Or would such a statute violate the non-delegation doctrine, which, as you know, prohibits Congress from delegating legislative authority? Because Congress, after all, makes laws, not lawmakers. So as background, when Congress uh, created Amtrak in 1970, uh, it made an offer to existing freight railroads that they couldn't refuse. Basically, um, allow Amtrak to use your railroads and give them preference, give Amtrak preference in the use of those railroads, and you no longer have your common carrier um, obligations to provide um, passenger rail service. So now fast forward a few decades, uh, Amtrak is still bleeding money, and Congress is now concerned that these freight railroads have reneged on these offers and are not giving priority to Amtrak on the railroads. So now it passes another statute, okay, which requires the Federal Railroad Administration to, quote, jointly determine performance metrics with Amtrak and these would include things like how often are the trains delayed at each station? How often is the entire route delayed? And if the agency and Amtrak can't agree on these performance metrics, well, then the statute says appoint an arbitrator. Needless to say, because we have a lawsuit, uh, the freight railroads were unhappy with the performance metrics, okay? And unclear how you could be unhappy with measuring delays at, at, at stations. Um, but they brought suit challenging it um, as a violation of the non-delegation doctrine. How this case will come out, I think, uh, really depends on three themes that course through many of the Roberts Court's separation of powers cases. Um, including the NLRB versus Noel Canning decision last term dealing with the um, recess appointments clause, uh, the free enterprise fund case in October term uh, 2009 dealing with the president's removal power, and likely in Zivotofsky versus Secretary of State, also before the court this term, um, dealing with the uh, president's recognition power. On many of them, uh, these themes, uh, the court is divided as exemplified by Justice Breyer on the one hand, because he's written many of the principal majority and dissent, dissenting opinions in these cases, and Justices Scalia and Roberts on the other. So the first theme is um, the difference between privileging the idea of the workability of government gained through its experience. Workability is indeed one of Justice Breyer's favorite words. Um, versus the more originalist understandings um, of the Constitution. Um, as many of you know, Justice Breyer is an Article I groupie. Um, he used to work uh, for the, the Senate, the Judiciary Committee. And I think he, along with Justices Sotomayor, uh, Ginsburg, likely Justice Kagan, are much more willing to allow Congress to innovate with new governmental forms, okay? whether it's the Public Company um, Accounting Oversight Board and Free Enterprise Fund, whether it's these public-private entities like Amtrak and these government corporations. And in addition to Free Enterprise Fund, we also saw this theme, I think, uh, explaining the deceptively unanimous decision in Noel Canning last term, uh, where there was a real disagreement, right, uh, the, where um, Scalia writes an angry concurrence um, based on the originalist understanding versus Breyer's opinion, right, which is much more um, willing to uh, consider and privilege, right, how government has worked itself out in practice. 
So in this case, DOT versus AAR, um, I'm in DC, so I think I can use the acronyms. Um, I think workability is really going to favor a positive outcome for the Department of Transportation and Amtrak, okay? Because again, these public-private entities are really proliferating, and I think um, the, the a faction of the court that really privileges um, that idea will um, look kindly at Amtrak as, as, a, as a public entity for the purposes of the non-delegation doctrine. Okay, the second theme, I think, is um, the divisions in terms of emphasizing precedent versus first principles. Precedents versus principles. In the context of this case, um, Cass Sunstein often likes to point out that the non-delegation doctrine has had one good year. Okay, in 1935, right, when the Supreme Court uh, used the non-delegation doctrine to strike down two provisions of the National Industri Industrial Recovery Act in um, Schechter Poultry and another case, Panama Refining. And really, since then, the non-delegation doctrine has really fallen to the wayside. And now it's really just used as a canon of statutory construction, right, to find and read in an intelligible principle in statutes, and the case that's arguably the closest precedent um, is a case called Carter Cole, uh, decided in 1936, um, which really had different facts. Okay? It dealt with um, a statute that allowed undoubtedly private coal producers um, to set maximum hour minimum wage laws, uh, and two-thirds of them could basically bind the other one-third of the private industry. And importantly, that case was decided on due process grounds rather than the non-delegation um, doctrine, and therefore is, is not squarely on point, and the, and the due process argument was weakly, if, if at all, um, raised in the court below. That said, um, this court has sometimes reached holdings based more on first principles, arguably, than on holdings firmly grounded in precedence. So here, for example, the D.C. Circuit opinion below, I think, could be understood as really reasoning from first principles um, rather than precedents, which until now um, have not distinguished on the basis of whether an entity is public or private for the purposes of the non-delegation clause, right? Just looking for that intelligible principle. Finally, uh, the last theme, I think, is the familiar one between the formalists and the functionalists on the court in terms of thinking about the separation of powers. Okay, so people who like formalist approaches, and this is simplifying greatly, um, tend to favor bright-line rules in the context of the separation of powers. They like the separation of the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branches. And I think in this camp, you know, we could count uh, Justices Scalia, certainly, Justice Roberts, Thomas, Alito, sometimes Justice Kennedy. Uh, the functionalists, by contrast, generally favor more multi-factor standards that examine more on the order of checks and balances, okay, the extent to which these core functions of these branches have either been encroached upon or unconstitutionally infringed. And whenever I, I talk about multi-factor standards, I'm always um, reminded of uh, a joke that my fellow law clerks and I used to have um, when clerking for Justice Breyer that, that we should have a keyboard shortcut for the words taken together because he, he very much likes these multi-factor standards, right, that taken together um, counsels some outcome. So this theme, um, I think, was resonating throughout Free Enterprise Fund, okay, where Justice Roberts pens the majority opinion, and it's a bright-line rule, right? Two layers of four-cause removal, unconstitutional, 
Okay, and we've got Humphrey's executor, so one cause, uh, uh, four cause, one layer rather of four cause removal is okay. Whereas Justice Breyer's dissent uh, very much emphasized the, the functional nature of the Public Company um, Accounting Oversight Board and the extent to which the Securities Exchange Commission actually had very tight functional control over the board in that you know, it could remove the board below the members of the board, um, it could reject the regulations and the decisions of the board, and therefore was very functional in nature. So in this case, for the formalists, whether Amtrak is a private entity could turn on, as the D.C. Circuit determined, on the extent to which there's any kind of profit-making motive on the part of Amtrak, or, as the D.C. Circuit also pointed out, on the extent to which it has a .com website address. It's Amtrak.com, right? Maybe we should um, pin something on that. By contrast, uh, a functional approach uh, would really look at uh, the extent to which the government currently controls Amtrak in practice. Okay, consider the president appoints eight of the nine um, Amtrak directors. They're all removable at will. Uh, those eight then appoint the ninth member of that board. Congress sets all the salary limits for the Amtrak officers, requires them to submit num a number of reports, uh, the government owns all the preferred stock of Amtrak. They subsidize it with over $1 billion every year. So against this backdrop, uh, what will the court do in this case, and what uh, is it likely to do? I mean, ultimately, it's difficult to predict the exact lineup because I think it'll depend um, on the ways in which particular justices come out on these three dimensions. So, for example, Justice Kennedy is sometimes a formalist, as he was in the Free Enterprise case, whereas he was much more willing to look at historical practice in joining Breyer's opinion in um, NLRB versus Noel Canning. But I think the most likely uh, narrowest outcome would be a reversal of the D.C. Circuit, Okay, a decision that Amtrak is, in fact, a public entity for the purposes of the non-delegation clause, such that the statute here is not an unconstitutional delegation. This, I think, would be most consistent with precedent. Okay, there's a case called LeBron, uh, written by Justice Scalia, which basically determines that Amtrak is indeed a public entity for the purposes of the First Amendment. It's also consistent with leaving the non-delegation as kind of this dead-letter doctrine, so don't poke the sleeping bear. <laughs> and uh, there are other potentially non-mutually exclusive grounds for reversal here. Okay, uh, the opinion could be written uh, to decide that this isn't a delegation of legislative power because these performance metrics aren't, it's not a binding rulemaking, right? The, the, the agency would still have to defend or enforce based on the statute itself. Um, or alternatively, the court could just avoid the constitutional question through statutory interpretation and simply determine that the arbitrator that's appointed has to be a government arbitrator rather than a, a private one. And then finally, of course, the other possibility is that the court could affirm the D.C. Circuit and agree that this was indeed unconstitutional. And if there's a justice, I think, that's most likely to vote this way, it would be Justice Thomas, uh, based on a concurrence um, in an opinion that he wrote in a 2001 case called Whitman versus American Trucking, where he sort of signaled that he thought that the non-delegation doctrine should do a lot more work than it's doing now. Uh, that is, it should be extended beyond just this idea of intelligible principle. And this could very well be the case for Justice Thomas um, to set forth his views on, on how that, that could be done. 
But this, that kind of outcome would arguably throw into question, as I mentioned, all these other government corporations. Okay, for example, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Communications Satellite Corporation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Okay, there's many of these um, government corporations that exist. So in short, I'll just say that the Roberts Court certainly hasn't been shy in, in tackling these difficult separation of powers cases. And despite some recent deceptively unanimous decisions and results, you know, the justices, I think, are going to continue to divide in their reasoning, um, whether due to their different views on workability versus originalism, precedents versus principles, the values of formalism over functionalism. I think all these ideas lend credence to the notion that the court doesn't necessarily have to be understood as just a baldly political institution, but rather understood in terms of their departing jurisprudential commitments. Thanks. Um, hi, everybody, and thank you all very much for coming. It's great to see old friends and uh, students who have uh, conspired with my dean to make me feel really old. So no thanks for that, but it is great to see you. Um, I thought I would talk about the two potentially high-profile areas that we might see decisions, in which we might see decisions this term. Now, I say potentially because no cases have actually been granted on these issues yet, but they might be. In one case, I think they very likely will be. The other, much more up for grabs. The, the one issue, of course, is same-sex marriage, where there are seven, count them, seven petitions before the court right now. And Adam Liptak had a, I don't know if he meant it to be hilarious, but it was actually kind of a hilarious story in the Times the other day about how the lawyers in these cases are climbing all over each other uh, to be the one. I mean, never mind. I don't have to argue with the other side. Forget the other side. It's my <laughs> side that I'm arguing with, and I want my case up there. Um, and uh, I think most people think the court – it's not a, not a foregone conclusion that the court will take those cases. There's no conflict in the lower courts, and they could decide to sit out and let public opinion evolve a little bit more. But I think most people think they will take those cases in some form or another and, uh, and resolve the issue this term. I think that's likely to happen. The other issue is the one about the Affordable Care Act and whether subsidies are available – for um, uh, in, in states in which states have refused to establish exchanges and the federal government has had to set and establish exchanges and whether premium subsidies are available in those states. It's a technical-sounding issue, but if the answer is that subsidies are not available, there's a good chance the Affordable Care Act could collapse. Um, so it's a, it's a very important issue. And this is something that's been in the papers recently. Just a couple of days ago, a federal district judge in Oklahoma ruled in a way that would be unfavorable to the Affordable Care Act. The D a panel of the D.C. Circuit also reached that conclusion, but the D.C. Circuit has taken that case in bank, and the Fourth Circuit has ruled in a way favorable to the Affordable Care Act. So at the moment, there is really no, there's no conflict in the circuits. Um, there's a petition from the Fourth Circuit case before the court. I'd be very surprised if the court took that case in the current state of affairs. And I actually think if there's no conflict, the court will not take the case uh, to resolve the issue. I think they'll just let the court's appeals resolve it. And there was enough bloodletting about the first iteration of the Affordable Care Act cases. I, I can't imagine they want to get back into that. On the other hand, if there is a conflict, if the court's appeals diverge, I think they have to take the case, and that will end up before them. So those are the two, the two I think, if, you know, it's, if you're sort of looking for what could be the headlines of this term, I think those are your two best candidates, although in, in uh, one case at least it's pretty speculative. Um, now, what's interesting about these, uh, these two cases is this. If you're 
um, thinking about the themes of the Roberts Court and how will history regard the Roberts Court. These two cases, I think, give you a pretty good idea of the things that history might look back on and say, this is what the Roberts Court was about. Um, one is gay rights, where uh, certainly if the court establishes a right to same-sex marriage, and I think everybody, pretty much everybody thinks if they do take this case, the signals from the recent cases are pretty clear that there are five votes to say there's a right to same-sex marriage. Certainly if they say there's a right to same-sex marriage, and possibly even if they just let the issue be resolved in the lower courts, the court will go down in history as one that was on the frontiers of establishing rights for gays and lesbians. The, the Roberts to to overstate really greatly, but the rough idea would be the Roberts Court will be to the rights of gay and lesbians what the Warren Court was on race issues. Now, that's an overstatement because for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, discrimination against gays and lesbians has not played the role in American history that racial discrimination has played. Public opinion is at a different place now with respect to that issue than it was with respect to race when the Warren Court got into the picture. But roughly speaking, this will be a court that's seen as a pioneer in that area. So that's one theme. The other theme is potentially more momentous uh, and also less, it's less clear than it will be, but there's a good chance it will be, and that, and that is this. Um, will the Roberts Court be seen as the court that undermined the role that the federal government has played in the American economy and really in American life since the New Deal? And that means the New Deal, the Civil Rights Revolution, the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, the great wave of regulation that took place in the 1970s when uh, Nixon, that Nixon, Roger Nixon, was president, um, whether the, and of course the Affordable Care Act, the sort of follow-up to those, to those uh, laws, whether the Warren Court will be seen as a court that through a variety of means chipped away at the foundations of those aspects of uh, American government and really American life, you know, chipped away for better or worse uh, at those things. There are, you can make a case that, that the court has been on that mission using a variety of means Sometimes the Constitution, as in almost in the Affordable Care Act case and, and as uh, they, uh, in the Voting Rights Act um, uh, uh, decision, um, sometimes using statutory interpretation, sometimes using principles of religious freedom, sometimes using uh, free speech clause of the First Amendment, in a variety of the, the, the cases Jennifer just mentioned or other examples of these, in a variety of ways has tried to undermine the foundations of the kind of uh, uh, state we have seen for the last 80 years uh, here. Um, now, and that's, I say the jury is out on that. It's not, it's not clear that that really will, is what will happen. A change in the composition of the court could change all of that. Um, maybe it's just a misreading and it's just a sort of series of decisions and we're, and we're wrong to kind of see a trend, but a case can be made that that's, that that's part of what is going on uh, here, a pretty consistent pattern of, of undermining, as I say, the role of the federal government in particular, and to some extent the states have played in regulating the American economy and American society. Okay, what do we make of the fact that those, seem, those are arguably the two themes of the Roberts Court, the two things the Roberts Court will be known as? So we make of that. I've got a happy story for you and a less happy story for you. The happy story's not that happy, and the unhappy story's not that unhappy, so don't, don't get your hopes up. But, but, but uh, um, here's the happy story. Um, uh, let me begin this way. You remember when, uh, well, the happy story is this, that, that one of the sort of notable developments that sort of, uh, we, we kind of miss it, of the last several decades, I'd say, is that the court has managed, deciding a bunch of controversial questions, the court has managed to position itself so that neither the liberals nor the conservatives really want to attack it frontally. Neither, neither side really wants to discredit it and go to war on the court. 
Um, if you remember, a couple of uh, years ago in the State of the Union address, President Obama criticized the Citizens United decision with the justices or several of them sitting in front of him, and there was a kerfuffle about that, whether this is an appropriate thing for the president to do. And then before the Affordable Care Act decision of a couple of years ago where the court ended up upholding the Affordable Care Act, there was again a statement from the White House to the effect that, you know, this is a decision that was made by Congress and the Supreme Court really ought to take that seriously, and there's a little kerfuffle about that, about the president kind of implicitly challenging the court. Um, now, those things that, the, that President Obama did did kind of strike us as surprising, but if you look at the course of American history, I mean, that's nothing. If you look at, um, at the way Franklin Roosevelt went to war against the Supreme Court, uh, what President Obama did is tiddlywinks. Um, uh, it really doesn't even, doesn't even make a blip on the proverbial radar screen. Richard Nixon, as a candidate, ran against the Warren Court. That was a big issue of his campaign, that he was going to fix what the Warren Court uh, had done. If you look further back, President Lincoln, President Jackson, President Jefferson, I mean, they totally took off the gloves in attacking uh, the Supreme Court. You don't, you don't see that now. Now, maybe the culture has changed in a way that just would make that impossible today. I, I think that's, that could be the case, and I would attribute that to the kind of the perceived heroism of the Warren Court in the civil rights era that the Supreme Court kind of has a, um, uh, a stature now because of what it did in, on race relations that make it immune to those attacks. That's possible. But the other thing is the court has kind of positioned itself, and I don't think it's done this deliberately, um, but it's positioned itself so that neither side really wants to sort of see it uh, uh, totally discredited. It's been basically a conservative court for the last 40 years. It's had a majority Republican appointees, I believe, since 1971 without interruption. Uh, so it's basically a conservative court, and conservatives don't want to attack it for that reason. Uh, liberals don't attack it um, because of abortion, um, because the court has been the barrier to a lot of abortion laws that liberals and liberals want to keep that in place. So they don't want the court uh, discredited. Now, with abortion, I think, about to return to the court because of the wave of restrictions adopted in the wake of the 2010 uh, state legislative elections, and the court may be being uh, something liberals will be less happy with on the abortion issue. Now you have gay rights, um, where the where the uh, liberals are not going to want to see the court discredited because the court is going to be a, sort of on the um, a, a, a great um, proponent of gay rights. So I think that will continue. Uh, the court will continue in this position where neither side really wants to see it institutionally undermined. As I say, I don't think anyone is. I, uh, certainly not the court as a whole is calculating it. For one thing, a lot of these decisions, half the, almost half four justices disagree with. Um, it's not as if all nine of them together are saying, yeah, sure, let's give the left abortion. Yeah, sure, let's give the right affirmative action. It's, they're, they're splitting five to four. It's possible that the swing justice, Justice O'Connor, was very politically savvy, uh, for example. It's possible that they're kind of instinctively thinking about this. But but whether it's conscious or not, I think it is, in fact, something that's happened, and that will continue. Okay, that's my happy story. So I told you, such as it is. Um, the less happy story is, is this, and this is, this is how I'll wrap up. If, if you go back to the lessons of the era in which American constitutional law, as we now know it, took shape, if you go back to the lessons of that uh, era, you, have, a, you have, a, have to ask some questions about what's been going on in the Supreme Court. In, uh, in the last uh, decade or more. Um, now, when I say the sort of era in which American constitutional law took shape, what do I mean by taking shape? Here is my rough and ready guide for what's taking shape. Apologies to those of you, those of you who suffered through classes with me because I use this conceit, I'm sure, like my bad jokes over and over again. Um, 
Uh, here's my test for whether something is foundational. If, if you say the, if you're nominated to a, certainly a seat on the Supreme Court or even a seat on the Court of Appeals, and you're in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and someone asks you, do you, what do you think about this case? Um, what answer could you give that would cause everybody quietly to fold up their papers and say, okay, you're finished. You know, go home. You're not going to get confirmed. So if you say Brown against Word of Education was wrongly decided, you get the hook. Um, uh, if you say that Lochner, the case that, uh, that's uh, symbolic of the year in which the Supreme Court struck down massive amounts of, or large amounts of welfare and regulatory legislation, if you say that was rightly decided, um, you get the hook. I'm not saying that, that that's the right position as a matter of abstract theory and just sort of as a predictive matter of what it is, you know, what, what in, your, in your preparation for your confirmation hearings, if you propose you're going to say that to people preparing, you'll say, oh, my God, let me out of here. Um, um, so those are the foundational, the foundational uh, uh, those are the, basically the foundational uh, principles. That, that era, the era spanning from the New Deal through the Civil Rights era, um, you know, there are people who lived through that, that era, and the lesson they drew was this. The Supreme Court should stay out of controversial matters. Controversial matters should be resolved by the political process. That's what the political process is for. But sometimes the political process will break down, and then and, then and only then the court should step in. And, of course, the civil rights era was... Uh, a, a, the clearest example of that, where you had massive disenfranchisement, formal and informal, of African Americans in the South, malapportioned legislatures, the repression of political dissent. These are other areas in which you just can't count on the political process to solve the problem. But the idea to the people who lived through that, the people who learned that lesson from the New Deal and then had to adapt themselves to the Civil Rights Revolution, realizing, no, we, we can't just say the court should stay out of the picture. Sometimes they should step in, but only when you can really make a case that politics isn't, isn't adequate to resolve this issue. Um, people who lived through that era, if you had told them that you know, we would have a generation-long debate about health care, uh, in the United States, and then through a, you know politics, and it's messy and it's ugly and it's you know the cliche sausage making, um, we would get a law that you know no one thinks it's perfect. Lots of people oppose it to one degree or another, but it was passed through the political process. That the Supreme Court would seriously consider striking down that law. People who lived through that era would be aghast, um, uh, would not understand why that was still a possibility. And so that part, of, that part of what could be the Roberts Court's agenda, undermining things that the political process with all its failings has produced for us, I think that would produce disquiet among people who are responsible for shaping constitutional law as we see it today. And the story of gay rights, unfortunately, I think is, is, is also a little troubling on that dimension um, because the, the truth is the, the courts are not really needed uh, to resolve that issue now. Public opinion has shifted so amazingly quickly on that issue. Again, for better or for worse, whatever you think about that, the fact is public opinion has undergone this seismic shift on the issue of gay rights and, and even, even same-sex marriage. Um, and that's why you have the lawyers climbing over each other to be the ones to argue the case that they think will be an easy, and I think they're right, will be an easy, uh, an easy win. Now, I think if the Supreme Court decides that there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage, that will, my own view is that'll be a good thing. It'll be a good thing for human rights. It'll be a good thing for the country. But I think the advocates of gay rights could be permitted to say, you know, you guys, where were you 25 years ago? Um, 
you know, not that the court would have been ready to establish a right to same-sex marriage. Then I think it wouldn't properly would not have been. But there's a lot of discrimination against gays and lesbians, a lot of ugly discrimination against gays and lesbians then. And that's when you really needed the court. That's when things looked like race circa 1950. That's when you really needed the court um, uh, to step in. Um, so I think even now it wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if some people on the court who personally believe there should be a right to same-sex marriage, who will vote to say there's a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. There's some people on the court who, uh, with this sensibility that came from the New Deal and civil rights years, are thinking, you know, it really would have been better if the courts hadn't gotten into this. If politics had taken its course, this had been resolved politically, that would have been a healthier society. As I say, I think it will be a good thing if the court does establish that, but it does leave you a little bit you want a little bit, I'm a little bit qualified in that sentiment, and it does leave you a little bit uh, disquieted whether this court really has a sense of its own proper role. Okay, thank you very much. And I am, I am now to invite questions from you. Um, and I, I think you're, um, I'm supposed to ask you to say the questions into Marsha's microphone. I actually have sort of a factual question, which is, assuming Fisher does get back to the Supreme Court, would Kagan still be recused? Is there any reason that she wouldn't still be recused? I mean, I don't know exactly how she was tangentially involved in that case when she was in the SG's office, but in a second or third iteration, the question I have is, would she be recused, and wouldn't that if she is, wouldn't that be a reason for the court to just wait for another case? So, uh, so yeah, she would be recused um, from hearing this case. Um, it's the uh, opposition itself rather than that particular iteration of it. Um, one could imagine uh, those uh, who don't want the court to take the case again to say, uh, you know, that um, it, we would be better served by waiting until a full court can weigh in on this matter. Um, but, you know, that rationale did not prevail the first time that the court took the Fisher case, and so it's hard for me to think as to why it would prevail. Well, um, the, only, the only question, obvious question here is, if you have an eight-person court, in the first instance they didn't know for sure she was going to recuse, and now, if you have an eight-person court, you not only have an eight-person court, you are excluding the one person who's actually been a law school dean. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm very sympathetic to the idea uh, that the court should wait uh, for uh, some other challenge and that it's a good idea for having a uh, full court. It's hard to know whether that played some issue in accounting for the incredible long delay between the court, between the case being argued, which happened very early in that term, and then the case being handed down, uh, which happened near the end of the term, and many people thought that we were going to at last see, you know, Justice Thomas's 
you know, opus on originalism and everything, uh, and, and that, and that uh, did not come to pass. Uh, so I, it only takes four people, of course, to uh, grant cert in a case, uh, with uh, even if there are eight people that are potentially involved. And so you could imagine uh, those who really dislike affirmative action uh, wanting to take this case I mean, uh, and, and, and get rid of it one, and get rid of it once and for all. Yes. Um, I'm going to stand because the podium is in between me and the speakers. Uh, I want to pick up on something that uh, Justin began with about how there's pretty thin gruel on the uh, on the docket this term. Um, uh, those of us who watch the court for a living but don't have to submit uh, daily you know, deadline uh, articles, uh, sort of like that, I get to work on some longer term things uh, uh, this term. But there does seem to be uh, a trend. Um, you know, even if gay marriage is taken this term, uh, you know that'll uh, consume all the news media. But still, it's, it seems like a lot of the increasingly interesting uh, and even circuit split uh, type cases are being turned down uh, by the court. Part of that, uh, and, and that's part of the uh, explanation for the unanimity to the extent that it's whether real or faux that we're seeing in some of the uh, rulings. And I'm, I'm wondering if. Uh, uh, Justin and and uh, uh, the others could uh, uh, get their ideas about uh, give us their ideas about uh, if this indeed is is something that John Roberts is driving or um, you know wh- why are across a whole span of legal areas it seems like very valid uh, cert petitions uh, uh, are being turned down. Um, yeah, one of the interesting things about. Uh, John Roberts and his chief justiceship is that he, when he was, uh, before he became chief justice, but shortly thereafter, talked about wanting to expand the court's docket, that there were lots of cases that were, uh, you know, cert-worthy that were not being denied, and since he's become chief justice, that expansion has not happened. Uh, It's gotten, if anything, slightly smaller. Um, I think it's very hard to locate any sort of, you know, coherent, consistent, transubstantive explanation as to why uh, perhaps cert-worthy cases are being denied, but it's possible that uh, Nina's question about uncertainty is one of them. If you're not uh, confident about the outcome of the opinion and many of these divisive questions uh, you know, are coming before the court, and one is not certain where Justice Kennedy is going to come down, and he's the decisive figure. Decisive figure. Maybe it's better just to uh, wait until another day. I think there's a potential institutional reason too, and that has to do with the cert pool. So uh, before Justice Stevens retired, uh, there was both Justice Stevens and Justice Alito were outside the cert pool, and I think what that uh, resulted in was um, a, a willingness on the part of Justice Stevens to pick out cert petitions that he th- he thought were particularly noteworthy. And I think one needs a lot of seniority often to be able to go into conference and really defend uh, why a cert petition that wasn't picked out by the pool. Uh, should be heard by the court. And I think with the retirement of Justice Stevens, we only have Justice Alito outside of the cert pool. And I wonder if that's a structural reason that could help to explain um, some of the fewer grants that we're seeing. Yeah, I actually also have a structural explanation. I think it's a problem. I don't know what the solution is. The problem is the kind of difficulty the court has in really figuring out what's going on out there in the world. Um, and there was a, another of Adam's pieces in the Times about how they're getting their facts from amicus briefs of all places to get your facts from. 
But but where else are they going to go? On the internet? You know, Wikipedia? I mean, is that, maybe that's an improvement over amicus briefs. I'm not sure. Um, uh, um, but they really, I mean, this is, a, this is a very common complaint of people in private practice, particularly sort of with repeat clients or, or a, a business-type practice, that there'll be a case that's very important. Um, and they'll file a petition trying to explain to the courts it's important, and the court just doesn't have the resources to know whether the case is, I mean, all the petitions say this, you know, the world will come to an end if you don't grant this petition. The court doesn't have the resources to know whether this, you know, this apparently technical-seeming issue of tax law or environmental law or labor law really is an important issue. They just don't have the resources to, to know that. One, one thing that they used to be able to rely on was uh, the Solicitor General's office. Uh, they used to be able, they used to sort of take, the, when the Solicitor General said, no, this is a, this is a big deal case, either in its own petition or uh, in, a, in a rare amicus filing in support of a petition, uh, the court would take what the Solicitor General said seriously. And they sort of saw them as their entree to the world of, like, knowledge out there. Um, but I, one, one trend in this court, which uh, I think this is a trend, I don't want to go too far in saying this, but an arguable trend in this court is a, a degree of hostility to the Solicitor General and the federal government that we haven't seen before. Um, I think there's both in the, the style of their questioning and in the substance of their decisions, they are more mistrustful of the federal government than uh, previous courts have been. And I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You can say, I mean, when I was in the Solicitor General's office in the, in the, uh, in the 80s, um, uh, I thought we I thought we had it too easy. Uh, the court was much too sympathetic uh, uh, to us, and if and if we went to the court and said, "Oh, gee whiz, you know, you got to give us this, or the the prisons will explode," I'll be, you know, what 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 more can we do for you? I'm exaggerating, but but I think they gave maybe too much credibility. Now, I mean, my inclination is to think the pendulum has swung too far the other way, and they're too distrustful. Um, so even that potential way of figuring out, you know, what cases do we need to grant is. Um, is, is closed off. And as Justin said, you know, confirmation hearing after confirmation hearing, senators ask, shouldn't you be expanding your docket? And, they, and the, the nominee says, yeah, I think we should, and then nothing happens, which suggests that there is something systemic, uh, a systemic problem here. Um, I, I was wondering if you had any thoughts or observations on the mortgage banker's case and how you think the, the court may come out on that. Say more about it. Um, well, mortgage bankers is the is called the one bite at the apple rule, where if an agency has an interpretive rule um, and it's been in place for a while, can the agency come back and issue another interpretive rule without notice and comment rulemaking? And you've got the Alaska Hunters Paralyzed Veterans Doctrine in the D.C. Circuit, which says basically if you have this practice and you've had this interpretive rule, you have to come back and do notice and comment rulemaking, and the Supreme Court has accepted cert on that case. Is that your belly work? Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> so, yeah, so just as um, explained, the, the case indeed, um, I think, pits a contrast between um, how you interpret, interpret uh, the Administrative Procedure Act uh, versus, um, in terms of its text, versus how the, the courts, the D.C. Circuit here with the one bite of the apple rule, have been interpreting in practice. And um, I think one way to think about the case is actually um, in light of a, a recent article that Cass Sunstein and Adrian Vermeule wrote, um, which I think is, is really illuminating, at least to me, um, 
uh, it's, it's the idea that um, the D.C. Circuit has been promoting a vision of what they call libertarian administrative law. Okay? And they use the mortgage bankers case and the, DO, this, the case that I talked about today as sort of paradigmatic and, um, of this libertarian trend that is analogous to the progressive trend on the D.C. Circuit before a case called Vermont Yankee. So Vermont Yankee, of course, uh, forbid judges from layering on top of just the bare text of the APA, which is what people are now accusing the D.C. Circuit of doing, um, because, of course, just the text of the APA, right? Interpretive rules don't have to go through notice and comment, whether they're definitive or not, um, whether they um, have been longstanding. And um, I think this is a chance for the court to uh, do a kind of a Vermont Yankee 2 here, right? Repudiate sort of this trend on the D.C. circuit um, to, um, you know, promote, you know, what, what uh, Cass and Adrian, you know, I think identify some trends that suggest that there are these judges on the D.C. circuit that um, are, are pushing in this direction. And uh, this could be a signal, given that they've taken the case, that they're indeed going to do that. That is to say... Uh, uh, overturn the Alaska Hunters case and, and that stream of precedent. I wonder if I could get uh, the members of the panel to comment on what the current status is of originalism as a mode of interpretation. Uh, to those of us who are from an earlier era at Chicago uh, Law School, the real originalist was really William Krosky. And sadly, his views are neglected, but his views were profoundly different of originalism, of course, than those which are entertained, say, by Justice Scalia. But I'm interested in knowing what you think the current status is of originalism as a mode of interpretation. Is that, is that for me? Um, I, I think that um, while I wouldn't want to disparage efforts to learn things from history, I think you can learn a lot from history. I think the founders were smart and thoughtful people, uh, and we can learn a lot by seeing what they said. You know, there have been some other smart and thoughtful people since then, uh, uh, in addition to all the people in this room. Um, and we can learn a lot from successive uh, justices and successive courts and, we should, and, and, not, uh, and not, um, uh, not, not confine ourselves to the founders. I think basically everybody understands that. Even the so-called originalists understand that. Um, if, you, if, you, if you try to identify instances in which even the sort of self-identified originalists are really prepared to overthrow the apple cart because of what they believe um, uh, was required by what the framers did. It's hard to find any. Uh, what you usually find is things that people think were a pretty good idea anyway. And what do you know? This pretty good idea that I have, James Madison had it too. Isn't, isn't that nice? Um, and that's, and that's, what you, uh, that's what you see. And I, uh, Justin mentioned the sort of lack of originalist justification for positions that people have taken in affirmative action and elsewhere. Here's one, here's one further thought about that. I think here, here's where you see original. The, the, people think originalism is something, a lot of people today think originalism is something that sort of identifies with Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. Of course, the most influential self-proclaimed originalist of the last hundred years was neither of those people as Justice Black, um, who was very much uh, originalist, textualist, uh, I'm, I'm doing what the framers wanted me to do. I'm just following the words of the Constitution. He was hugely influential uh, in, in, the, in the Warren Court uh, era. The lesson I draw from that is that you're an originalist when you're trying to change things. If you're trying to overthrow the existing order, um, Justice Black sort of came to a, the legal, said to the court at a time when the legal profession was 
where the, the, the sort of Supreme Court's law was dominated by the people who are hostile to the New Deal and also by a lot of racism. And he wanted to get rid of both of those things. And you've got to stand somewhere. And if you can't stand on the existing tradition, where do you stand? Well, you go back to the founders. That's where you, that's where you look. Uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas were in a similar position with respect to the Warren Court, or what they, what they saw as the Warren Court, and other, other things that they thought were wrong. They wanted to get rid of some stuff, to change some things. Uh, and they did the same thing. Uh, they, had to, they needed a place to stand. I think what you're going to see now, now that the tradition has moved in a more conservative direction, and again, you know, maybe correctly, maybe not correctly, I think the sort of the more recent appointees, Justice Alito and Justice uh, the Chief, and the Chief Justice, you know, they're not, they don't really pretend, they don't really claim to be originalists. I mean, they'll cite some stuff, um, but they don't do that. In fact, Justice Alito sometimes makes fun of originalism on the bench is when he asked Justice Scalia, or said Justice Scalia was trying to figure out what James Madison thought about video games. Um, uh, uh, and that's because they don't, they, don't need to be, they don't need to overturn stuff. So I, I think that's what originalism does. And, and, and so what you would predict is now a revival of liberal originalism. And in fact, in the academy, you're seeing that. Uh, you're seeing liberals kind of go back and say, you know, uh, really, the framers were sympathetic to, believe it or not, they say, some of them say, abortion rights, which I think is crazy, but that's what they say. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I think that's what's going on with originalism. I don't think it is. I, I don't want to. I don't to say it's not really a method of interpretation. Is to attribute a, a kind of uh, uh, hypocrisy to people that I don't want to attribute. But I think the role it serves is in providing people who want to uh, overturn a whole tradition, providing them with a place to stand. Um, let me ask you a post-Hobby Lobby question. Um, in Wheaton College v. Burwell, the court hinted that they might take cert on the accommodation itself. Uh, if they do, if they reverse it, what does that really say about the um, intellectual opportunism of the court? Well, it's, I don't know, intellectual opportunism. I actually think intellectual opportunism is a great thing. I don't, um, um, well, a couple thoughts. I, I, you know, I mean, you know, the Obama administration has issued a regulation to deal with that, which may just sort of wipe out the whole problem and make the whole thing unsearthworthy. I understand why Justice Sotomayor was upset. It looked as if the court was, this is why your reference to intellectual opportunism, it looks as if the court was saying, well, okay, this accommodation you've made for religious groups, you really could extend it to groups like Hobby Lobby that are not themselves religious but have strong religious views. Why can't you just do that? Just kind of read them into that. That's easy. And then they came along in the Wheaton College thing and suggested that's not good enough. You need to do more still, more still, more still. And that's what, that's what she objected to. Um, and I get that. The fact is that, that the court is dealing with, with a regime, the regime established by the Religious Freedom Reformation Act, RIFRA, that is very hard to come to grips with. I mean, to, to tell the court, uh, here's your job, court. Look at what the government did and balance the intrusion uh, the government has made on religion versus the government's interests. I mean, that, you know, you're dealing with, on the one hand, transcendent obligations that people feel toward, toward, their, their, toward their deity or toward their religious creed, and kind of run-of-the-mill, the, the sort of pedestrian stuff of running a government, you're telling the Supreme Court, you know, put those in a scale and see which way is more. I mean, that's, you know, that, that, that's going to produce some arbitrary-seeming results. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't think Hobby Lobby was correct. In fact, I, 
uh, in a way, I think it's perverse. I think they were, in effect, penalizing the Obama administration for being so accommodating. And I think that's an odd thing for them to do. Um, and I, for, so, so I didn't think Wheaton College was right either. But having said that, I think even a good faith effort to apply the Religious Freedom Reformation Act is going to produce some results that, you know, that are very easy to attack. All right. Well, I just want to thank our faculty for joining us today. I'd like to thank all of you in the audience who are alumni and friends of ours for being here today. Uh, you will see a lot more of me and, and other people from the law school uh, over the next year as we launch our campaign on October 29th. Uh, but no more of that talk today. Uh, you know, it's sort of the elevated Supreme Court conversation versus the Dean conversation. Uh, but I, I hope that you've all enjoyed your time here today, enjoyed getting to back in touch with each other and seeing uh, some of our uh, wonderful professors. So I think they'll be willing, if any of you have questions, to, to come up to the uh, stage. And with that, I just hope you all have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.